got our speaker panel here, and I've got some good questions. So we're going to go down the line first and have everyone just introduce themselves, because I know not everybody went to every breakout session. So we'll start with you, Rick. Rick, you want to introduce yourself? Okay, uh, Rick Holland, um, Mission Road Bible Church in Kansas City, grew up in Tennessee, and I love the orange and white Tennessee volunteers almost as much as you like the Jayhawks. That's but, right. But I'm, yeah. I'm going to grow up and be like you. I someday. can respect that. You know, That's good. you got to be true to your school. You have to. So. Yeah. Uh, Brent Laird, and I'm in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at Calvary Bible Church, and. Um, you know, Dave knew me when I was single and in, se and in seminary and is still astounded that I did get married yep. and uh, despite all that he observed. So. Yeah, both he and I, we were, we were single losers together giving each other really bad dating advice. Oh, we gave each other horrible advice. Oh, man. Advice, so so it, it worked out in the end. That's right. And he was a missionary in Ukraine for how many years before you were at Kalamazoo? Uh, 2002 to 2015. Yeah, and, and our church supported him, and he's been a frequent guest at the Ironman Summit, so it's good to have him back. Brett? Brett Kapranica at Summit Woods Baptist Church in Lee Summit, Missouri, southeast Kansas City. And how long have you been there? Been there for just over 13 years. Okay. Yeah. Bart? Bart Horton, Grace Bible Church in Hutchinson, Kansas. Okay, and how long have you been there? January of 11. That's when I got there. Okay, and how long have you been the senior pastor? Hmm. 2016, I think. Okay. I don't so remember. So let's do the math. 15 or 16. Okay. Rick, whenever Rick left, not okay. that Rick. Rick Gertson. Okay. All right. So first question. Can a person find these church family relationships in a parachurch ministry? Does that count as church? Were any of you guys involved in parachurch ministries? Rick, what was yeah, your Yeah, I was on staff with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, in college. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, had a great time. Uh, the, the one quick short answer to that is it depends on the ecclesiology of the parachurch leader. There are yeah. some parachurch leaders who always push the, the members back toward the local church and some who I think pull them out of the local church and try to make it a pseudo church without all the, the uh, uh, commandments of uh, church order, mm -hmm. elders, overseers, um, Mm -hmm. Baptism, uh, communion, um, church discipline. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what's your read on just parachurch ministry, pros and cons? Brett, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, every parachurch ministry has one single focus, usually, that yeah. they're built around, so there's no way they could possibly be the church. Mm -hmm. uh, nor, nor do most of them really want to be the church, but it's interesting to see how people gravitate towards that one thing and want to define their Christianity by that and find their relationships defined by that. You need all the problems of the church because that leads to sanctification. You mm -hmm. need all of the leaders of the church because God's ordained that for your spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't die for the parachurch ministry. He died for his church. And so I think we need to centralize that. So yes, you can find good and even helpful relationships in a parachurch ministry, no, it's not the church. It can't be your church. Mm -hmm. It should not be your church. That'd be my quick answer to yeah. that. Yeah, I know. I, I became a Christian through a parachurch ministry, and uh, I'm thankful for it, and it was great, but what happened was I was sanctified by a lot of my peers. At some point in time, I had to kind of cross over and be a part of the church because when you're at the University of Kansas, you don't want the only adults in your life to be the professors, right? 
And so there is something about being a part of a church family, and I think if the parachurch ministry encourages that, I think it could be a good thing. Sure. Bart, you have any thoughts? That's good. Okay, you're good. All right. So how would you help a person who does not attend a church fellowship but says they are connected to the church because they have many Christian friends? Brett, uh, Laird, I'm looking at two Bretts. So I've got to distinguish you. Yes. I mean, I, I think the thought that comes to my mind is kind of like the you know, guy who says, I don't need to get married because I know lots of girls. You know, it's, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's just not the same. <laughs> yes. You don't need to say anything more there, do you? <laughs> I, I think we're all afraid to elaborate on that, Brett. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing that. But, you know, we were single friends together, so, you know, we have all kinds of bad analogies back then. Um, okay. Anybody want, else want to, like, venture into the road? What do you think, Brett Branica? Just uh, so dangerous. Again, um, that's a failure to understand what the body of Christ is. It's a, the things that we talked about in the breakout session. It's a failure to understand the temple of God, of which you're a part. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, you, you have to be a part of the church. You can't. I'm, I'm just sending them your message. Mm-hmm. They need to hear that message. You can't live out the Christian life as God intended without the local church. Mm-hmm. You can't. Yeah. Rick, what are you thinking? Well, it's, it, this sounds so self-serving, but if you're not involved in a church, it is so unloving to those who are leaders in the church to whom God is going to hold a great account. In Hebrews 13, 17, we often pay attention with some agreement or derision, depending on your theological perspective, with the first part. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Mm -hmm. So my question to anyone who's in that position is, who's going to give account for your soul in Mm -hmm. heaven? And that, to me, um, is, is one of the strongest arguments for church membership. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an official relationship of accountability. And, uh, you know, I, I ask this sometimes. You know, it, this is getting really vulnerable, but it's, everybody wants their, every pastor kind of wants their church to grow until you read this verse. Mm-hmm. And every person who comes to my church and has a relationship with us through membership the Lord is going to hold me accountable for. Mm-hmm. That is a traumatizing reality. Thanks so, for bringing that up, Rick. <laughs> let's close in prayer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think that, but, but to, just to talk to them about where is that relationship? Who will give an account for your soul? And which leaders are you holding accountable to God's word? Because mm-hmm. that's a part of the congregational responsibility that you have. There has to be that official recognized relationship. Mm-hmm. amongst the church members with the church leadership. So what do you think is the heart behind somebody like this, where I have my Christian friends, I don't need the church. Why do, why do they just content to stop there? Bart? They're in a situation where they can get all they want, but don't have to give. And, it, you know, in the church, you get both people that you can pour into and people that pour into you. And... Uh, when you set up all your situations, all your relationships, how you want, then you're only going to be a part of those people's lives where you get something. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, it's the bee monster. 
We're going to have something, Brett? Yeah, you know, the scripture says that one part of the body can't say to another part, I don't need you. And typically when it's like, hey, I've got lots of Christian friends, what they, they're, they're talking about the same age group, you know, you, you know, typically that's where your friendships are. So they're essentially saying, look, I don't need older people. I don't need younger people than me. I don't need different people than me, right? I just mm-hmm. need the people that I like to hang out with. And, and so I think it, it's a form of pride, right? It's like, hey, you know, me and my friends, we encompass everything that the Lord needs us to have. Mm-hmm. And none of the other parts of the body of Christ have anything to offer us. And so I think it's, it's really driven by a, a form of, of spiritual pride. Yeah. So I really like this question. I don't know who wrote it, but free pie for you. As a senior pastor, what makes an excellent associate pastor? Who would like to venture on this one? I mean, I think all of us were associate pastors at one time. Yeah. So we kind of know what it feels like to be on both sides of that uh-huh. equation. Um, yeah, I think part of it is just knowing what position you play and playing it well. Um, not everyone's a pitcher, not everyone's a catcher, a first base shortstop what has God called you to do and do that well and uh, God's given our church such an amazing staff uh, where we all they're all Swiss army knives no one does just one thing but they just have a lane that they serve in that's so well um, and they're content with that Um, so I think a good associate pastor knows his gifts knows his um, opportunities his service is happy to to um, uh, to function in that, but most of us know that. I mean, we're all sitting here as, as mm-hmm. senior pastors. That you know, I have regular talks with the guys. You need to let me know when you want to do what I'm doing, and we're uh-huh. going to make that transition as as smooth as possible. But in the, what makes a good associate pastor is good communication mm-hmm. with the elders and the pastor, um, understanding his gifts and roles and what God has called him to do, and staying in. Being faithful in that lane and then having, just having good, honest discussions with the people around you about what you want to do eventually and being clear yeah. about that. And when he loves the church more than he loves the expression of his giftedness, mm-hmm. he can really invest himself in the people and the people see that. And he, he's not just interested in the pulpit. He's interested in the people in the congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's someone the senior pastor can rest in because he knows he loves this flock. I can trust that. If I can trust an associate pastor because I I think he loves this church and will give himself here. And and like Rick, we've got guys who are growing up and I think will be phenomenal, capable preachers. Mm -hmm. They preach better than I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to see what happens with them. And (laughs) we have those conversations at times too, as to when is it going to be time? Because I I don't want to hold you back from that either. Mm -hmm. I want to see that happen. But I really appreciate when they love the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, an associate pastor, as a college pastor at Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. And one of my college staff came up to me, it was October, and he said, you know, Pastor Dave, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Really? Yeah. So I was thinking about um, talking to the college students and get a collection together for a gift. Okay. So what do you think Pastor Jack would like? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, um, I'm sure you'd like a lot of things. 
But I think that's one thing. When you're an associate pastor, like everyone knows what the senior pastor does every Sunday, and you almost feel like you have to justify your existence. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And the senior pastor usually gets paid more, gets way more honor, and gets the gifts. And there can be a real temptation for envy or jealousy. Um, and because you, and I think one of the hard things to do is to say, I want to, I want to see the church flourish and grow, and I don't care who gets credit for it. So that's why I like humility and just being willing to celebrate the success of your other associate pastors, if their ministry is thriving, or the senior pastor. So, and, and that's kind of a hard thing to do, but I think a God, God has a special regard for those who kind of humble themselves. Um, related to that, I mean, what makes a really good lay elder? Bart, what do you think? Lay elders, uh, man, they have one of the hardest jobs in the church because they work a real job. Mm. And then church people expect them to serve in the church in similar ways as pastors who have all their time devoted uh, to the work of the ministry. And so I really admire uh, lay shepherds, uh, the way they sacrifice. I think that's something that's necessary. They have to sacrifice. It doesn't come easy. Uh, there's no working on it on their afternoon, they've got their, their real jobs. But I think those guys who uh, love the Lord, love his church, love to give their time, effort, energy, and it's their passion, and they want to serve, they don't view themselves as part of a board. I view board as a bad word. I mean, mm-hmm. they were a team of shepherds with one leader and his name is Jesus and we serve at his, you know, his direction. And, mm-hmm. and guys that are willing to, to pour in, sacrifice, shepherd the flock, feed the flock, deny themselves. They make, they make great Christians and great layovers. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Okay, I guess we'll move on to the next question. So what is your strategy for cultivating honest confession of sin for people during corporate gatherings? Brett, you're laughing, which means you have to answer this question first. <laughs> Would you like to confess anything? Um, I was laughing because I was remembering Rick's initial answer to this question when we, we saw it. We don't do that. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's a place for a corporate confession when that sin has impacted the entire body. Mm-hmm. But to have some regular... I think you want to be careful that some sins need to be confessed to the Lord. Yeah. Some sins need to be worked out interpersonally, right? Matthew 18 even assumes that you're going to try to work out some things one-on-one, yeah. not in front of the body, but only when there's a rejection of, of confrontation do you bring that forward. So yeah. I think you want to be careful with that. Have that you guys idea. ever been in a situation where you've seen public confession go wrong? I'm just going to make a straight face so I don't have to answer that, yeah. you know. I mean, I have. Would you like to hear about it? You probably would, right? <laughs> yeah, we were at a, a Christmas conference, and we had like a, you know, what have you been learning? And this guy stood up and said, I've just been convicted about just my lust and how I just lust for the women after this room. And, and it was like, okay, well there goes this spirit-filled moment, right? <laughs> and, and I think, obviously, people can kind of get carried away with confession, and it's almost like authenticity 
you know, I'm being authentic and that's deep and that's real and that's a way of connecting with people. But, you know, I, I think that's kind of the wrong way. Like, being vulnerable is not the same thing as having fellowship. I mean, it's really built on, not on, you know, self-abasement and shame, but, you know, your, our common love of, of Jesus Christ. Are you going to say something, Rick? No, I agree. Yeah. So here's another question. Why, why does it seem that national church attendance is, is cratering while Islam is becoming the largest religion in the world? What do you think? Brad, I'm a former missionary. You've ministered in other cultures. I mean, what, what's your insight as far as, like, why does it seem to, why does Islam seem to be growing? Well, so I think there's a couple different answers. One is a historical one, which is historically um, uh, religion has followed conquests to a significant degree. The Roman Empire conquered most of the world. The Roman pantheon of gods was the most, you know, kind of numerous religion. Mm -hmm. Alexander the Great, same thing, Genghis Khan. Um, and Islam was spread by the sword, right? I mean, they mm -hmm. conquered huge swaths of the world, and, and um, part of their theology is subjugation by force. And so um, that's the bulk of it, um, kind of following along with that is, is their concept. Um, so I remember um, being in one area with a Muslim people group, and the, the, one of the imams just told me, he said, we instruct every one of our men that their duty is to have at least six sons because we've calculated in 20 years we'll take over this country via democratic elections if each of our guys has six sons. So, um, you know, so I think there's multiple uh, causes for it. Um, you know, I think uh, in our discussions, maybe it was you, Rick, was, was saying, hey, part of this too is just what, what the scriptures predict in terms of the end times, right? That, um, you know, that, um, you know, Things are, you know, evil men and imposters are going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And, um, you know, so but our call is just to put in Christ and trust the Lord of the harvest uh, with, you know, whatever level the harvest is in our time. So what do you guys make of, let's say, church attendance in the U.S. going down? What do you think might be behind that? I mean, has that been the experience at your church? Not recently, and I think we would say we've been talking about this among a number of churches yeah. in our area. We've actually seen church attendance grow significantly uh -huh. among like-minded congregations. So um, I don't know if that's a unique work of the Lord right now in this area. I, I tend to hear of it in other places. Post-COVID, there's something that got stirred mm -hmm. up there. I uh, can't put my finger on all of that. Mm -hmm. um, but the question, too, is almost a misnomer in some ways. Um, Islam and its growth is not necessarily a growth as a religion uh, itself. Many places, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a characteristic of the people there. It's not necessarily a religious growth. People are mm -hmm. becoming more devoted to the tenets of Islam. Mm -hmm. um, when we've been serving in and ministering in an Islamic country where they have really no regard for the religion, but they can't imagine themselves culturally outside of Islam, but they, mm -hmm. they don't practice it. Yeah. So it's growing, perhaps, um, but we're actually seeing, I, I hesitate to call it revival, because you probably gain more insight on that in hindsight, but something's happening here, and there's some significant growth, conversions and people mm -hmm. coming out of dead and dying churches who are interested in the word. So I don't know what that looks like statistically across the country, but. Mm -hmm. uh, so what level of optimism do you guys have about just the future of the church in general? 
Jesus is coming. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I'm very optimistic. Uh-huh. I think it's fascinating. A lot of guys are preaching on eschatology right now. And I don't know how that, I don't, that wasn't coordinated. Um, mm-hmm. But as we see the culture becoming more oppositional, it's right for our eschatology to be more robust and to expect mm-hmm. the Lord. That's a motivation to holiness. It's a motivation for evangelism. It's a motivation for everything we do mm-hmm. as, as a believer. So um, the Lord is coming back. We win. The Lord wins. He rules. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. We're uh-huh. going to be a part of that. that. If you're not optimistic about that. You know. Yeah. So speaking brother to brother, when is a sin great enough that he should be confronted and not covered with love? Bar, you kind of had an interesting story about this. Is that this question? Yeah. Oh, man. I opened my mouth, got myself in trouble. Here's the public confession of sin part. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Bart's dad, please close yeah, your ears. Here. I don't even, I don't even know if he knows the story. a long time ago it's been dealt with. Yeah. Where is your dad? He's right over there. Oh, we just want to. Okay, okay, we'll get the live feed, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in seminary once upon a time. And, uh, you know, I was 25-ish, 24-ish, something like that. And I had some beer in my fridge. Nobody left, so that's good. So I had some beer in my fridge, and there was this guy that moved into this house that we were living in. First day, he sees the beer. And by beer, I mean two. He leaves, goes back to where he came from, tells his pastor, his pastor calls my pastor. You might have heard of him, John MacArthur. <laughs> John MacArthur tells the dean of the seminary, Dick Mayhew, Dick Mayhew, told some of their cousins, or Boosnitz, or Boosnitz, <laughs> tells Bob White, Bob White calls me into his office. Then Bob White says, go talk to that guy. So I went and talked to Rick. How did we get here again? My public confession is soon. <laughs> So anyway, no, is that, is that I, it, does, it doesn't really matter. Just so, keep talking. So Rick, he <laughs> says, he, he says to me, hey, I think this is the wrong answer to the right question. But anyway, yeah. uh, he, he says to me, because you were going to ask me about alcohol. Did I jump the gun? No, no. We're talking about confronting, being confronted, oh, confronted with sin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Confronting. So, yeah. This is your so Rick confession. Just, Rick just says, uh, are you, are you going to choose this or choose ministry in the church? And I remember thinking, you old guy. That's not helpful. And that was 20 years ago when I was an old guy. Yeah. He's been in ministry longer than I've been alive. Yeah. I think we were all in his preaching lab. Yeah. Yeah, yeah gonna, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, his his view of his view of of liberty, his view of wisdom, his view of choosing uh Christ over freedom and personal liberty, man, as a young guy, that was hard to swallow. Mm-hmm. But I needed somebody to, to help me see what was more important. And it mm-hmm. wasn't that I wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm. It was that Jesus is better. Yeah. And I should choose Jesus, not worry about this stuff, get rid of this stuff if it means I can pursue uh, Jesus. And So thank you. Yeah. And I have no idea if I answered the question. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll kind of build on it. Like, like even in a marriage, right? When do you bring something up versus cover it with love? 
You bring it up if it's hurting someone else and they don't see it, don't mm -hmm. know it. Mm -hmm. So if, if I snap at you and I say, oh man, sorry, and we can move on. Mm -hmm. If I snap at you and then snap at you at tomorrow and mm -hmm. the next day, then you should probably take me out to lunch and pay for it and then yep, tell of me. Of course. If you're confronting someone, you pay. That's a rule. Send third right. Timothy. Okay? Christ, Christ paid for their sin, you pay for their lunch. Right, you know? right, right. Give me the check and you need to quit sinning. So, yeah. you know, if they don't see it, you need to help them because yeah. they're sinning and they need help. I mean, what's the drawback? So what keeps you from always bringing it up? <laughs> I mean, why do you think the well, it's covers a, multitudes? It's an interesting question. Let me, let me give up an analogy. And your kids, how many times do your kids, especially your young kids, sin, not a day, an hour, a, a 10 minute? If yeah. you confront everything, you'll exasperate them. Uh -huh. And I think that happens in every relationship. So what Bart said really draws out two principles. Is the sin egregious to the extent that it's causing relational harm? Confront that if it's harm. Or if it's a pattern. You know, everyone's going to have an outburst. Everyone's going to have a bad moment. Everyone's going to have a bad response. So are your kids. If you, you, we just can't confront everything. That's all we would be doing. We're sinners. Mm -hmm. So uh, e the level of hurt and egregiousness and the pattern, um, I think that that's... You let love cover momentary sins all the time. We, we have today with each other, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that, those are choices that you make, but that's also Matthew 18. We've, we always talk about third and fourth step. The first two are just loving, hey, listen, can we think about this in a different way? Yeah. Um, and that ought to be happening all the time. Mm -hmm. so. Any wisdom in talking to somebody about their sin? Like, because, I mean, it is a difficult thing to do. I mean, so yes, what do so you do? A little bit um, for me, the line is, right, because you, you have the verse, forbear with one another. Mm -hmm. Right, you have love covers a multitude of sins. So, so you know, if if there's an issue, I want to at least consider like, is this something I should just forbear? Yeah. Is this something I should just cover in love? I think where I'm going to go talk to the person is, and I think the key is Galatians six, right? If someone is caught in a trespass, mm -hmm. go and restore them. Right. So like, if this is something that the person isn't extracting themselves from. Mm -hmm. then they need my help, yeah. right? There's, there's a ton of things that, you know, it's like, the guy, you know, clearly the guy committed a sin, but he, he's, not, he's not ensnared in that sin. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, you know, he's, he's, you know, the kind of normal means of, of walking with Christ. He's, you know, he stumbled, he gets up, keeps going. Mm -hmm. It's when I see something where it's like, this guy needs help getting up, yeah. right? That's when I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to him. Yeah. Maybe it's hard for us to go to someone because it's not really a part of the norm of our relationships to be talking about how we're growing in the Lord or ways that we've been failing. What's your approach to church? Is it the norm of your discipleship when you're sitting down with people to talk about reading the word and the Lord's convicting me of this? And so there's a norm of talking about how we're overcoming sin so that it's not so out of kilter if someone were to come and say, I see something that concerns me that doesn't uh -huh. seem to be normal because yeah. we, we tend to live with each other like uh -huh. this in a helpful way. Yeah. Look, kind of returning to you, Bart, we kind of opened the door for just alcohol. 
You're a young man. Can, can, can I finish that story yeah. real quick? Because that, sure. that's, that made me sound like the hero of that story, and I wasn't. The hero of that story was Bart saying, you know what, I haven't been thinking about this right. Mm-hmm. And I do have the freedom to do this, but for the sake of the gospel, yeah. I think I need to make different decisions. And so that was, I was so impressed. This is a weird thing to say, but my, my, I have three sons. My sons, when they were younger, their favorite babysitter was Bart. And I don't know what all you did when, uh, when we were away with them, but man, they, they loved you. I know there was no beer in the, in the refrigerator. There's a reason I only had two beers. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding. Yeah. Hopefully your dad didn't hear that one. So. Your dad is so proud right now. <laughs> that was worth the drive from Kansas City, yeah. so that's good. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, you're, I think a lot of, like, a lot of young men kind of go through, I think, the alcohol phase. You know what I'm saying? We kind of talked about that phenomenon where, I mean, you, you had some insight about that, Brett. Like, like why, why is this kind of like a, an issue with young men? Well, so I think it's particularly an issue for young men because in the United States, and this is more an influence of secular culture on us, there's a legal drinking age, right? It's 21. And so in our society and culture, alcohol has, has been merged with the concept of a rite of passage, mm-hmm. right, of really being an adult. So I think you know, for a lot of young men, it's like, you know, they want to do this not because they've thought through a theology of it, not because they've thought through the, it, it's permissible, but is it beneficial? Not for any of those reasons. They want to do it because it makes them feel like a grown-up man. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think of, of all of the reasons that you could possibly exercise your Christian freedom, that's one of the worst, right, mm-hmm. is, um, is to do it there. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why it, it tends to be a pretty intense issue for young guys in their early 20s, um, especially. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes the cool kids' table. The cool guys are doing this, and I want to... I'm thinking back to high school, sit at the cool kids' table, so I want to do what they're doing. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, we were talking about the fact that we all agree that the Bible forbids drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Is that a spoiler alert to anyone? So, <laughs> good. Knowing that, if that's the case, then the only reason to let a beverage, this alcohol or distilled, cross your lips is because you like the taste. Just like you would like a Diet Dr. Pepper or something. Mm-hmm. And when you boil it down to, you can't, we're not supposed to get drunk. It's clearly forbidden in Ephesians 5.18. The only reason to do it is taste. Does this taste so good to me that I would be willing to absorb all the accoutrements that go with uh, people's questions that come with that? Now, that's not the same, we were talking in a missionary context, that's not the same here as, as in um, um, Italy when I go over there to, to, to minister. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is culturally defined. Let me just say for the record, the Bible does not forbid consuming an alcoholic beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that's what you teach, uh, Brett would like to talk to you uh, later. And he, uh, no, Dave that is going to do that. No. Yeah, that Brett is going to do that. Yeah, it's just being, yeah, it's being wise, um, and it's just saying, well, uh, here, I don't want to be too personal. I, I, I don't drink anything, and um, in 
four decades of ministry, it's be, abstaining has never caused one question in my life or ministry. Never one time. Never once. All of my friends, even in ministry, who do, and that's their freedom and prerogative, have an endless cycle of explanations that they have to give. And I just, I have so many things I have to explain in my life. I don't want to add that one to it. So. Yeah. Bart, what were you going to say? Well, you, you kind of brought up just the issue of autonomy. You know, like, why is it very, why does it become like a battleground for a lot of young men? Yeah, there's a, there's that feeling, you know, Brett kind of mentioned it as like a coming of age thing. And yeah, it's a freedom. What do you want to be characterized by? Are you the whiskey club guy? Or are you the one that people know they're going to see Jesus when they show up? You know, man, can you? Sure. Do you need to? Never. So why? And, you know, if you go to Tahiti and they have a free thing of champagne when you go into your hotel room, I don't care. But is that yeah. the pattern of your life? I, you know, yeah. I, I just think we have to be careful with the pattern of our life, you know, and, and how we pursue Christ and how that's what people know about us, not the definition of our view on yeah. freedoms. And Dave, before, you, before we go too far down that road, we also have to remember Romans 14 talks about those who make judgments mm-hmm. uh, about those who do participate in freedoms. You can, mm-hmm. have, an, you can have the legalistic guy who mm-hmm. becomes as equally offensive to the Lord by making judgments on those who enjoy freedoms as the one who does unwisely. And Romans mm-hmm. 14 deals with both sides of that, that argument. Mm-hmm. Here's another question. Um, we are sometimes challenged to get out of the Christian bubble and into the world to reach the world that we should have unbelieving friends for the sake of evangelism. The New Testament expectation of the Christian life seems to be far more focused on loving each other within the community. How can you speak to a proper balance of this, or should there be any balance at all? So how do you hold in tension this call to love the household of God, be about being with your brothers and sisters and your family, as well as the call to make disciples of all nations? Sounds like a missionary question to me. Yeah, okay, Brett, go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, I was talking about this really wise pastor earlier, and he said something about, uh, you know, the question doesn't want to balance. You want to extrapolate on that? <laughs> See, I, I can do the toss back, too. He was our <laughs> preaching professor, so he should answer these questions. I'm sorry, you're on my deaf side? No, yes. No, um, I, I can come around to the other side if you need no. to. <laughs> you're actually on my good side. <laughs> No, I'm gonna, I'll start it, and then you can finish it. Now, the balance, I've, I'm not a big fan of the term balance, because balance typically means you have one high, one low, and you bring them into balance, which means this might be wrong, and this might be wrong. Maybe it's this, and maybe it's this. So balance usually involves a compromise of something. Um, not always, but, but balance kind of, we are commanded in John 13, they will know that you love me when you love each other. That's a command. The scripture, Hebrews 13. We spur one another because of love of each other. But we're also told in the Great Commission that we are not raptured immediately after the, our conversion to go make disciples. So those are both imperatives in our, on our lives. Mm-hmm. So then you start asking Bart's question. Am I approaching my fellowship with others in my assembling 
for the right purpose of love and mm -hmm. you know their their sanctification. And am I doing that with unbelievers? Now, if you if you're not going to church, you're not going to be able to do that. And if you don't know unbelievers, you can't extend the Great Commission. <laughs> so uh, th this is a probably a confession time. This is the public confession. It's hard for me as a pastor to find regular time around unbelievers. So I've joined gyms. I've, I've coached a little league team it, it, because my whole life is working with Christians, going to Christians. I have Christian water, Christian dogs I pet, Christian cats I kick. It's just, um, uh, actually, they're not, cats aren't Christians, so they're not. No, they're not. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I have to edit the tape on that one. So, uh, so it's just making that effort. So both are imperatives, yeah. and faithfulness in both is, is demanded of the Lord. Yeah, I think there's kind of a danger of using one or the others to excuse your responsibility. So, um, you know, the reason why I'm not really involved in the household of God is because I'm so busy doing evangelism with my non-Christian friends, drinking whiskey and shooting guns, or I don't know. But, um, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? So I've seen a lot of people just neglect, you know, they use evangelism as an excuse not to be a part of the household of God. And then I've seen people, um, you know, the, they excuse their cliquishness on being part of the household of God. And so they don't evangelism and they don't reach out because... I only want to be with my household. And so I think you need to be faithful to both and not use one to excuse the other. So another question, um, what is the biblical answer to worldly disappointment and discouragement? Um, I guess, is there, before you answer this, but is there a place for disappointment and discouragement in the Christian life? Is that okay? I think Brett? we see examples of it. I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He actually talks about despair in his own life. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.8, We do not want you to become unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And he goes on to say, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think if despair lingers as an end, mm -hmm. then you're, you're, you're heading towards a sinful kind of despair. Yeah. But he goes on to say at the end of that, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that mm -hmm. we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. So there was some use of his despair and the moments of despair that pushed him mm to greater hope in the ultimate purposes of God. So as soon as despair encroaches in on your hope mm -hmm. and your trust, yeah. then you're, you're leaving behind, you know, the, the Godward use of that despair. You're, mm -hmm. you're encroaching into sinful territory. Yeah. I really like how you put that. I mean, our emotions are to push us towards the Lord, not away mm -hmm. from him, whether it's anger, anxiety, or despair. Um, so what do you do if you're really struggling with, let's say, worldly, the bad kind of despair or the bad kind of disappointment? You have it. You know it's wrong. Uh, you're having a hard time shaking it. What, what advice would you give to a brother or sister going through that? What do you think, Brad? So you know, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse 4. And, um, you know, every kind of scholar and te Bible teacher I looked at all agree this is a passage where the Messiah is speaking, right? This mm -hmm. is a prophetic revelation of the internal thoughts of Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. 
And when I read the first line, you're all going to say, man, that's how I have felt. But then when I read the second line, you're like, okay, that's how I need to respond. Right? So mm -hmm. let, me, let me read this. It says, and this is Christ speaking, but I have said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That kind of describes our dating life in seminary, doesn't it? <laughs> the second line's coming, Dave. Okay, yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, right, I mean, that's how we feel. What's interesting in that phrase is toil and vanity are very clear allusions back to Genesis 3, hmm. right? And the scripture says Christ, came, you know, he's born of a woman, born under the law, Right? He became a curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. Hebrews talks about how he you know, endured sufferings. He, he was tempted in all ways as we are without sin. Mm -hmm. So he experienced the futility. I, I reminded my congregation, there's 30 years of his life where as far as we know, he was just doing manual labor. Mm -hmm. And that manual labor didn't seem to lift his family out of poverty because when you know, when he's on the cross, he has to ask his best friend to take care of his mom. I mean, they're not, you know, there's not family resources there. So he experienced what all you guys experience, right? Mm -hmm. you, you work hard, and sometimes thorns and thistles, it grows for you, right? Mm -hmm. I think he experienced that in his work life. He experienced that in his ministry life. Mm -hmm. He watched the crowd turn their backs and literally walk away. Mm -hmm. He ends his life with a crowd shouting, crucify him with his mm -hmm. best friends abandoning him, right? And so this prophetically says to the Messiah, will say, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. So that's, that's his empathy with us. But listen to the solution. Next line. Yet, surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God, right? So see, that's what he did with it. You know, that mm -hmm. feeling of frustration, disappointment is he never, to, to Pastor Brett's uh, point, never lost hope, right? He had, you know, he knew that justice and reward was coming, right? And that's what Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Mm -hmm. Now, that's great. Uh, how long should a sermon be? We'll kind of go down the line. How long do you preach, Rick? About 50 minutes. So that's the right answer. No, just kidding. <laughs> Brett, <laughs> how long do you preach? I'm supposed to preach 45 Okay. So it sometimes goes a little over, and I, I shared my session. One of my favorite means is there's a very fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. About an hour. An hour. Bart? 50-ish. I do about 45. So what do you think? How long is too long? And how short is too short? Well, I'll agree. Five minutes is too short, Right. Unless you're going down on an airplane and you got five That's minutes. That's right, when you got five minutes. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a great question, but it's a bit arbitrary. Uh -huh. um, you know, are you, your audience matters. How much have they been um, trained? I inherited a church um, from um, uh, my dear friend Rod Gertson. They, had, they were already used to 50 to 60-minute mm -hmm. sermons, so there was no adjustment to make. But if you show up with a, with a church that that has, is, doesn't have an appetite for, for that long, you might have to build that up. Um, but I will say this. I've heard guys... This is being recorded, right? Um, uh, I've no, heard guys... No, go ahead, say what you want. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have heard 45 minutes when I thought that really could have been 10. I've probably preached those kind of sermons before where people yeah. thought, yeah, you could have said that 
we could be at lunch right now and you're still going. Yeah. So, um, so it's, I think it's audience, it's context, it's the, what they're used to. Uh, we were talking about, you know, when I was in Russia, I was, I, I, pre, I was expected to preach 90 minutes and I was one of three preachers at that service that went about five hours, which is a very Slavic expectation, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, I don't think there's a right answer. Context matters. About this one, what is the most prevalent obstacle to a proper understanding of the church in current times? What kind of keeps people back from fully embracing the household of God? Go ahead. It's hard to put your finger on one thing. I think when we were talking about this, um, I'm not sure we always view ourselves as the slaves of God. We, we have other expectations and agendas. Where are we really here for, for God himself? That's going to affect whether or not we want to suffer, uh, how much we would want to suffer, what we, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's going to impact that. Are we really seeing ourselves as here for the purposes of God, we're slaves of God? Mm-hmm. I, I, I would say that's one expectation that we need to adjust. Other thoughts? I'll throw a wrinkle in here. Go ahead, Bart. The more you love Christ, the more you know Christ, the more you want to be with Christ. And when we're brothers in the family of God, we're giving each other more of what we want. Mm -hmm. So why do people not want to be in church? Because they don't want Christ. They'd rather have a free day. They'd rather have their hobby. They'd rather have their get-out-of-hell-free card, like I'm a member, but i got to go twice a year to make sure they know I'm still yeah. a member. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the more we love and are passionate about Christ, the natural overflow of that is to be passionate about what Christ is passionate about. He loves his bride, do we? So here's a couple scenarios, right? One guy has a shift that makes him work every Sunday. Um, another one committed, uh, their son's committed to a traveling team, that plays on Sundays. How would you advise each of those guys? We'll start with the guy who works on Sunday. We have those guys in our church, and, yeah. and the question is, is this a permanent situation, or are you a, a police officer who, for the next three months, is going to have mm-hmm. a shift? where you have to, and, and we do have those yeah. men and firemen. So I think that matters. Uh, if it's if it's a, a rotation kind of thing, uh, I think you work with that. If if your job does not allow you to worship on Sunday, I think that's that's a problem um, yeah. in, in our culture. Um, kids on traveling team, I, I'm not going to be silly and trite when I say this, but go watch Chariots of Fire. It's actually a really good message where the guy says, winning an Olympic medal is less important to me than my worshiping then then my sunday is sacred to me now there may have been some legalism in there i i understand all that but the upside was the dude said my values are very clearly between god and the world god and an olympic medal mm-hmm. this is an easy choice for me so um mm-hmm. uh, all seriousness that's probably a valuable thing so if you have a if you have a it's the same thing as this the if you have an outlier game on Sunday with your kid, that's one thing. If, if your child is on a Sunday traveling team, what are you teaching him about your values with the church? Mm-hmm. Because you are, what are you 
you, yeah. do you recognize what you're teaching him or her about that? Um, and look, I, I play four sports a year. I love sports. I, I, I love watching sports. We're missing a game right now. I understand that. Um, uh, but it's all values. What is eternally valuable and what is not? Um, mm-hmm. So I, it, it, we live in a culture where, I mean, this, I'm old enough where in Tennessee, they wouldn't, they wouldn't schedule anything on Wednesday nights. Yeah. Not Sundays or Wednesday nights because they knew that was church night. Mm-hmm. And now there's just no regard for that. I, I think that we can be worldly and be pulled into that vortex of values, or we can be chariots of fire and say, no, we have a different set of values. Yeah. Right next to our church in Michigan um, is a soccer complex. Uh-huh. About, oh, probably 10, 15 fields. And, um, and they have tournaments and games on Sunday morning. So you all drive in to my church, and there's 10, sometimes five to 10,000 people right uh-huh. over our fence. And, you know, on the way to my church, I drive past another couple of good churches, you know, and you kind of see the number of cars there and the number of cars there. And there's many times I've thought, you know, this is the new religion. This is the new religion. And I'm confident that amongst those thousands of people are genuinely born-again believers. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. I think there are a lot of men who use their children as an excuse for their lack of desire to worship the Lord. I don't think they're doing it for their kids. I think they're using their kids as an excuse. Now, I don't know their hearts, but... You know, that, that's something to, to just think about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they, 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 they're sitting there saying, I'm being a good dad, right? And, and I would really question that. It's like, what, what are you really teaching your son? Mm-hmm. I got an interesting question, um, kind of framed in the context of the society that we have right now. Um, there is a lot of cynicism towards authority. Uh, like my wife and I were talking the other day about just the different lies that were told by the government um, to us during COVID, right? Um, I'm not making a political statement, but that is, it is verifiable. That's what happened. And so you have a lot of people who, um, kind of this populist nature to our, uh, conservatism right now, when we're more of a conservative church that has a suspicion towards authority. Have you ever seen that come out in people's disposition towards you and towards church authority? And how do you deal with that? How do you help people navigate that? Rick, you had expressions all over your face. And I I want another confession from you. Go ahead. I think we can all give stories and anecdotes. But, yeah, I mean, people, we live, uh, one of you, Brett or Bart, were talking about uh, individualism. We we live in mid-America where, you know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, me and my way and rugged individualism. And there's there's an upside to that, which is, you know, have a good work ethic and work hard and and, uh, enjoy the fruits of that. But that also can become, we just don't like being told what to do. We sit... you guys remember, some of you will remember this and some of you are too young, but a few years ago, Latrell Sprewell on national television during a game began strangling his coach. Yeah. And I just remember watching that and I thought, I thought at that moment, and I was a younger man thinking, that's a cultural shift we just watched happen on our world. Then you watch the old, 
you know, um, uh, Vince Lombardi films where he is literally whipping guys in the tail with his whistle strap and they are saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I'm not making a value statement about the coaching style, but I am saying there was a respect for authority. Not one of those guys would have strangled Vince Lombardi. There has been a cultural shift of a stiff arm against authority that, that we see just about at, at every level. And I think that translates sometimes into the church. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17, we read earlier, you know, uh, following leadership is biblical. I mean, you see this in marriage, right? The big stiff arm against, uh, the egalitarian stiff arm against uh, uh, male leadership and, and, and husbands leading is, well, you're not going to tell me what to do. Life is about being told what to do by somebody. Is who are you going to listen to? Mm-hmm. You're even if you tell yourself, that's a whole nother level. So I think we are in a, in a we are watching our culture literally transform in front of us with with a um, with this authority. And what does what does Second Timothy three say? You know that one of the end time uh, uh, characteristics in Romans one will be yeah. basic down submission to authority is rejected, and in both places it says. Children will disobey parents. Mm. So I think it starts there, honestly, yeah. and then it builds up from there. Yeah. And we have to remind ourselves. I mean, we've seen poor uses of authority in church yeah. structures. Our authority goes only so far as God's word uh, takes us. And when we're exhorting someone to obey what we're saying, it needs to be in concert with the scriptures Amen. so that what we're really helping people to see is not that I am the authority that you're rejecting, but I'm trying to represent clearly what God says. This is not you and me. This is you and God. God is the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. Even in my kid's life, my, my role is not just to establish myself as their ultimate authority, but to remind them of the fear of the Lord. Uh-huh. Right? I'm pointing them to God's authority. Mm-hmm. And that's my role as a shepherd as well. Yeah. So in an anti-authority, well, let's, let's at least make it that you understand you're opposing God. That's, that's all good. And if, if, you know, as men in the church, if we just live the way the Bible tells us to, we will be a very different authority than people are used to seeing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to, if we want to be great, Jesus says, you got to be a servant. You want to be yeah. the best? You got to be a slave of all. Well, that's not the authority they see in the world. So yeah. if we're living that out, if we're serving and loving and caring for people and we're preaching the truth and we're consistent you know, mm-hmm. it takes years to earn trust and earn that authority. It takes seconds to lose it. Yeah. You know, so if we're consistently pursuing those things for the Lord, with the Lord, people will notice. It may not yeah. be as fast as we want, but they'll, yeah. they'll see it. Yeah, First Thessalonians, you, heard, you did what we said because you recognized what we said was the word of God, what you were saying. So you saw through that, which means that, meant that, the, that Paul and uh, Silas, were, what they were saying wasn't, hey, I think you ought to do this or that. They said, this is what the Lord requires of you. And yeah. they, they saw through them to the authority of God. Yeah, and I would say, too, you know, if the right person doesn't lead, the wrong person will. And if you're always tearing down good leaders, they're going to be replaced by a demagogue. The one who can get the most people angry at the leader becomes the leader. The most assertive person fills that vacuum. And so I think authority and good leadership is a gift. And it's a gift to society, it's a gift to the church. And if you've got a good leader and good leaders and godly men, uh, I would say give them the benefit of the doubt first. Don't, they don't need to earn your trust. They can lose it. 
what I'm saying? But if you sit there and say, they have to wait, you know, they have a three-year, in three years I might trust you. You start at first and you, you trust that they are godly men, you examine their lives, and, and if you discover that they're not godly men, they're hypocrites, then yeah, I'd find maybe a new place to serve. But, well, thank you guys for your insight and wisdom. Let's go ahead and give them a hand. Um, so...